Welcome to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode 25. I am the hack. Hugh Rimmington is my name. And here is the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. You're looking geeky, prof. I've got a sore back, actually. Have you? But we don't need to go into that in a podcast. Nobody needs to know, although they do now. They do now. (laughs) And um, uh, back pain, indeed, is a very important subject. But not one that we're going to canvas today. (laughs) A podcast on back pain. Um, Look, the whole country's in pain, let's face it. Mm. At least certainly the East Coast at the moment. And uh, we've come through these bushfires. They're still burning, uh, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, There are a lot of people suffering. But we have to talk about politics. We are a politics blog. What are the politics of the bushfire? Look, I mean, as you say, it does feel a little off to do it. But I find this debate about whether you're allowed to have a discussion about some of the causes, direct or indirect, of things like fires and droughts in the middle of them, whether that's the right or the wrong thing, not necessarily philosophically fair, because at one level, that's when people's attention is on the issue. So you can understand why people with strong opinions in either direction want to talk about it at that time. Now, there's a way to do it and a way not to, obviously. I think some of the Greens rhetoric calling people arsonists uh, who have you know views around uh, what should or shouldn't happen with coal production and all the rest of it in the midst of a fire, unnecessary rhetoric. But I actually don't have a problem with the broader topic being canvassed in the midst of a fire season, like, for example, those ex- Uh, emergency services chiefs chose to do because there is a a timing when people are alert to it. But to answer your question more simply, what's the politics of it? It's a difficult one for the government uh, at one level because they're already being accused of not doing enough around climate change and whether there is a direct or not impact on fires from climate change, there is certainly at the very least the perception that there is a direct impact if not the actuality that there is certainly an indirect impact. Most people would agree with that. I think you're being far too polite, Peter. (laughs) Uh, I have no problem with the guy teeing off on arsonists because it's a rhetorical flourish. Uh, You know, people can discount it. Sure, they will. I I do notice having been up on the fire grounds that one of the things is that the people right in the middle under threat are not talking about climate change. Mm. Uh, They are are in a moment-by-moment fight for... Uh, for their properties and they're fearful. Uh, they are, you know, the levels of anxiety on a fire ground when, when the fires are coming up. I was at Johns River, which is a fire where a woman died, houses were lost. It was extremely active. The firefighting was incredibly active. It's tall forests there. It was crowning up the top of those forests. They were bringing in, it really felt like a war zone in terms of the helicopter activity ab- above. Well, can I ask and you? And cur- the courage of those pilots, by the way, because they fly at treetop level, but they fly with very poor visibility because by, by the very definition of those mm. low water bombing runs, they are flying in the smoke at treetop level with other helicopters in the air as well. I know there was one crash during the course of... Up in Queensland. Think, yeah, up in Queensland, but it's actually surprised me that there aren't more uh, for the exact reasons that you're talking about. But I wanted to ask you, I, I assume um, in your years in journalism you've covered fires before. How does this compare uh, in terms of people's attitudes or in terms of – I mean, I know that the 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 – the, the acreage that has been affected is massive compared to last fire season, for example. But at that more anecdotal level for you, covering it on the ground, what are the differences? Well, 
you know, they say that every soldier only sees the battle in front of him. So no soldier understands World War II, but they could have a very intense understanding of a mm. certain part of the battle for Alamein because they're right in the middle of it. And I think every bushfire is like that. So what you see is not what someone else is seeing two kilometres away. And they'll come away with a version of these bushfires that's different from mine. Uh, there were some... Uh, I was in the Hunter Valley and some Victorian volunteers had come up who'd fought the Black Saturday bushfires, so they'd come up to support. And I said to one of these crews from Warrandyte, what, what do you, you know, how do you rate this? There'd been a very intense mm. localised fire at a place called North Rothbury that had leapt, it, it was almost certainly deliberately lit, it had leapt from the bush into the into the houses there that abut the bush and then there was a big fight on for houses. And he said, well, look, in Victoria, the, the trees are much taller. And denser packed. And if you know that countryside up there, sort of to the northeast of Melbourne, um, that's true. And when you get to mountain ash country, mountain ash is designed, as everyone knows, to burn. It can't propagate without fire. So these are big, tall trees that want to burn. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they get up, those are just terrifying, annihilating bushfires. The 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 where I was in the Hunter Valley, and even even further north, the bush is not quite so thick. Although I've got to say, up around that. Kempsey, Taree, that area there, it does start to get it, it does start to get a pretty bush, but it's so dry, it's burning from nothing to a big fire very, very quickly, and that was driven along by a better wind. So you know, this is a long way around to say that um, these are all terrifying. But if there's one thing that came out of it, bearing in mind the the million plus hectares that were burnt out in New South Wales alone, Kempsey, for example, a full third of Kempsey Shire uh, is burnt out. Extraordinary. So, uh, but there was not a high death toll, relatively speaking. Of course, there was a death toll, tragic, but there wasn't a high death toll relative to the amount and scale of the fires because that messaging has changed and the messaging now is is leave and live effectively. Um, they're no longer pushing the stay and defend type line. And getting back to the politics, what do you think are the politics of this for the government in particular? Look, the science and the scientists have been telling us for decades that a, a, a warming planet will result in circumstances, higher temperatures, drier conditions, lower levels of humidity, higher bushfires. What we are seeing is has been utterly predicted. It's not predictable, it's been predicted. And so to that degree, the fact that we're even having the conversation is to me a tragic failure of leadership, a, a sort of a baked-in uh, failure of leadership in Australia uh, over the last, uh, what do we know, a dozen years or so in particular. So no one who is intelligently engaged with reality could be surprised by what we're seeing because it's been properly predicted by sensible people. And... And what's astonishing in Australia is the immaturity about about this that and people on this network uh, in the past have railed against the warmists and the alarmists and all this sort of stuff and the catastrophists for years, and they've been part of a process that's that's forbidden us from having the proper conversation we should have about this. So Scott Morrison and the rest can hardly be surprised that there's a pent-up energy. But what do they do from here? Well, it's a really interesting question, mm. of course. Yeah, I, I, you shouldn't be... I, I shouldn't be talking <laughs> to you. But, but the, um, what do they do about it? I think we need to be more serious about doing our bit for reducing or, or the, the rate of climate 
warming around the world. There is no doubt that the total mm. deindustrialization of Australia won't make any difference. But we didn't beat the fascists in Europe on our own. We didn't beat Japanese imperialism on our own. These were threats, real threats, that would have completely overwhelmed us if we were left See, on that, our own. That, that's a good comparison. I've, I've, I've got another one that I've used to, to respond to people that say, oh, well, we're only less than 2% of global emissions, so we can't do anything on our own. If everyone took that attitude, hmm. then nothing would ever get done. Recycling never would have started as a thing. CFCs never would have been removed, uh, which were damaging the atmosphere. And now the examples you have, you know, if, if individual nations didn't bandy together uh, against Axis forces uh, at moments in time in history, World War II or in, indeed other times, then equally they would have been picked off one by one. I mean, that's the whole nature of getting anything done is collectivism. Now, this argument that is often used to say, don't bother because we're only X percentage of emissions from anywhere in the world, I think is a weak one. What I think is a more interesting discussion is this notion of whether it's too late. And it doesn't mean you do nothing. Governments and, and humanity can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can continue to try to reduce our emissions at the same time. And this is my query, as we perhaps do more about adaptation or more... Well, we're going to have to do adaptation. Exactly, There's adaptation no and, and technology as well, uh, the ability to try to somehow in time with scientific development deal with the effect of climate change to somehow reverse it if that can be done scientifically. Well, well one thing about technology is it will change energy generation and it is changing Absolutely. energy generation now. So the coal burning, uh, you can't imagine that in 80 years' time we'll still be digging up coal and most of the world will be relying on coal. So the question Hopefully, is, is it too late to do anything about it? The question is, it's never too late to do anything about it. And it's not as if people talk about this two degree of warming, etc. It's not as if there's some barrier that the globe isn't going to go above two degrees. Mm -hmm. The attempt is to try to, to keep it to two degrees uh, and ideally less than two degrees. But if we don't keep it to two degrees, it doesn't stop it. But how degrees. scary is that, Hugh, to think about the fact that the sort of best case scenario, which we're a long way off, is that society bands together we deal with the fact that emissions continue to go up, particularly in developing parts of the world. You can't begrudge them that to some extent because they are, by definition, developing, so there's value for those nations and the people living in them to that. But the idea that even if technology advances sufficiently, even if the global community comes together to try to reduce the increase of emissions, not necessarily to even necessarily reduce them, and even if we do start reducing emissions well, we're still emitting and therefore the temperature is going up. If the best case scenario is that there's going to be a couple of degrees increase in global temperatures rather than more than that, when we look at what's already happening with, you know, the worsening fire seasons and all the rest of it, boy, that's a scary proposition. Well, it is. And the thing about it is we can't imagine that we can adapt uh, successfully to the changes and, not do, and keep emitting. Uh, we're a rich country. Adapting to it is going to be enormously expensive and difficult. The coastline areas that are going to be, uh, again, it's the science. People say, oh, it's all catastrophe, but that's the science. Coastline areas are going to come under all kinds of strain. But to a certain degree, we have the capacity to pay for it if that's what we have to do. But places like the mouths of the Ganges River, where you've got mm. tens of millions of people living who cannot be in those places, uh, places like Jakarta, uh, Bangkok, these cities that, that will quite quickly be inundated. Um, but you're going to see all kinds of uh, human crises that will happen very fast, mass movements of people. Oh, this isn't catastrophizing. I think it's, 
it's, you know, it's real enough. The temperature going up, making life harder. There are 18 major rivers that, sorry, 18 countries that all depend on water that come from rivers that rise in China. Uh, China is damming those rivers. There are predictions that there will be all kinds of conflict over what happens to that water. So, you know, we're already heading into a dangerous space. I am hard-baked an optimist about us, sometimes a foolish optimist. I'm an optimist about stuff. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a catastrophist. But anyone who has responsibility for leadership in Australia or anywhere else in the world, to my mind, needs to get their head out of their ass and start leading on this because this... You know what I love about it, Hugh? You're absolutely right. <laughs> what you're suggesting which is essentially getting ahead of a problem and trying to prepare for it. We're not ahead ready of the problem. No, we're a long way from being ahead of it. That is, ironically, a very conservative it principle. It is the conservative principle, the precautionary principle. And this is a and thing which is so staggering. conservatives who are railing against doing yeah, anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, this is one of the things about it. I am attracted to conservative notions, small C conservative notions. And my bones and in my water, so I, I believe in everyone having a fair shake. Uh, I believe in a fair society as best as you can make one and all the rest of it. But in terms of radical change, I'm deeply suspicious of radicalism. I'm deeply suspicious of utopian thinking. So that's not me. I'm a, I'm a small C conservative on these things. And I would think, where are the small C conservatives? Well, you know the problem, the problem, Hugh, is that the people that now like to consider themselves conservatives, A, don't actually understand the principle, but B, they're not actually conservative. They're often reactionary rather than conservative in their sort of philosophical thinking. But they have hijacked the very definition of being a conservative. A conservative is someone who believes in institutions, is wary of change, but not necessarily opposed to it as long Recognizes as... Recognises change is inevitable, but so you've got to ride the change. Exactly. And change. if you accept the inevitability of some change, you can then get ahead of it and therefore hopefully limit it or ensure, ensure that it's pressure tested so that when it happens, it happens with fair planning and so yeah. forth and perhaps then avoid it becoming too radicalised. The same-sex marriage debate was a classic example of this. You know, the... the conservatives should have seen this coming and therefore been okay about it, uh, but tried to limit the extent of it, if you like, uh, over many, many years. That would be a more traditional conservative approach. The abortion debate in New South Wales, another classic example of it, conservatives railed against legalising or even decriminalising terminations in New South Wales for so long that they lost control of the debate altogether and then whinged and moaned when it was going to belatedly get changed as the last state in the country to do so. Conservatism as a principle is all about accepting some change, but trying to make sure that it's pressure tested and planning for things. It's <laughs> There's so little planning amongst today's conservatives. They've hijacked the name. They're not actually conservative. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk a little bit more about what that might mean for uh, Scott Morrison. He's taken a few days out of the spotlight. Has he been doing any thinking? We'll uh, come back to you on that one when we return for The Professor and the Hack. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. 
Welcome back uh, to The Professor and the Hack. We're on episode uh, 25. This is part two, I guess. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, Scott Morrison disappeared to such a degree at the height of these uh, bushfires that there was a, a hashtag Harold Holt trending, suggestion being that perhaps someone had taken the Prime Minister he'd <laughs> disappeared never to be seen again. It was curious that he removed himself from quite literally the line of fire at the height of, an, of a national emergency. Yeah, look, I'm not as harsh on him about this as, as as some, you know, getting out of the way in the midst of such an emergency makes a little bit of sense. Not getting out of the way of a drought, for example, where he was bobbing up all over the place is different because it's not all action stations the way that it is for fires. So, you know, the if you like, uh, the circus of prime ministerial visits uh, or bobbing up too often in the midst of, of the fires is something that's not a bad thing to be avoided. Now, that's my view. What I find interesting is whether or not that was really what it was all about, as opposed to him being away from the fire zones, not creating a circus where you wouldn't want to, but still bobbing up. Uh, with press conferences and so forth, he got, it was a difficult one for him, wasn't it? Because well, he was you, also can be, fo- you can be accused of 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 looking to to be almost uh, uh, gratifying yourself with publicity. In you the almost can't win. Yeah, you almost can't win. And uh, the the person that best dealt with an emergency, not fires but floods, I think, from a political perspective, uh, at that at the time up in Queensland was Anna Bly. I thought she did amazingly with that in the end. It didn't help her, of course. She had an election soon after, and she got wiped out. But that was one where she was a politician who. I think was widely regarded in Queensland as doing what a leader should around the crisis without exploiting it, which is probably why it didn't end up helping her anyway. Um, But it's a difficult one for Scott Morrison, not just because of how you can be seen by people, but also for him it actually was a real difficult one because he had this letter circulating from 23 former emergency chiefs uh, who had been trying to get to him and get to the relevant minister and hadn't been able to for many, many months warning about this sort of worsening fire season as a likelihood this coming summer, uh, and that was floating around at the exact same time that he otherwise might have been trying to do media conferences. And what does he do then? Talk about the issue, but then get questions from the journalists and do what? Obfuscate and ignore them where he'll get attacked or answer them, in which case he's having a political discussion right in the midst of the fires. He injected himself at the end of last week momentarily after the Greens had been having going back and forth with Barnaby Joyce, a member of his own team, to say everyone should just shut up effectively when it comes to that. I don't necessarily agree with that, even though some of the rhetoric was unnecessary. But, yeah, he certainly was not as present as he sometimes is, I guess, uh, during that period. But I'm not too critical. You wrote about it as being unfortunate, was your word, that the letter that came from those uh, 23 fire chiefs went to the Prime Minister first and then was referred on to the Energy and Emissions Reductions Minister, uh, Angus Taylor, who then did nothing with it. And Mm. you said that was unfortunate. I read your stuff, as I always do, Peter. (laughs) You're the one. Yes, I am the one. Um, And it struck me that the word you were looking for there was negligent. Yeah. Angus Taylor, when confronted, or the government at a high level, when confronted by the sincere writing, written warnings from a collection of vastly experienced people in this field, that there was no meeting to be had, that to me is negligent. It's negligent on pure political terms, in terms of don't be an ass, meet them. Um, but it was also it's the lack of curiosity, the lack of openness to any discussion that doesn't fit their preordained thinking. That's yeah. what disturbs me yeah, about I'm, this. Look, I'm a little torn on, on this one. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think 
most of what Angus Taylor does is negligent, if maybe not by intent, but by action. You know, he hasn't been the performer that I actually, frankly, thought he was going to be um, before he rose into the cabinet ranks that he has. I think he was the worst of ministers for a prime ministerial office that knows how weak uh, he is as a minister to handball something as important as that too, uh, with the risk of potential negligence out of the other side of it. The reason I chose unfortunate rather than negligent, though, is because I think that there are two things at play here. Firstly, the relevant minister, Angus Taylor, as well as Little Proud, as well as the Prime Minister for that matter, they're forever taking advice from current emergency chiefs, not just ex-chiefs, and it's not to belittle the ex-chiefs, but they are getting that information. But the bigger issue for me is actually that I know they were wanting to talk about the impact of climate change. I get it. But the emergency response side of what they were also asking about in their letter is very much a state thing rather than a, a national thing in a policy script sense. So don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not defending them not getting back to them. There is but, such a but, thing as national leadership. Surely there's a thing as national leadership. Oh, I, and surely if you're going to, if you're the prime minister's office, if you've received a letter like that and you've decided to refer it off to a minister, you think the appropriate person to deal with it, God help us, Angus Taylor, would you not send Angus Taylor receive this letter, pass it on to you, meet these people, let me know. Well, let me go back on that because what amazes me, and that's why I'm, <laughs> I'm at pains to say I can, I call it unfortunate rather than be too pejorative beyond that in my commentary on it, only because I can see all the moving parts in, in a prime ministerial office and in the office of Angus Taylor, and that's why I say it's unfortunate. However, I am no defender of what happened. Let's be clear about that. The idea that the Prime Minister doesn't take a meeting from 23 such people signing a letter like that over so many months, even just that he handballs it to a minister, even if that minister got back to them immediately. This idea that, oh, the Prime Minister's got a very busy diary. I think Jason Falinski said that on Q&A, you know, he's a busy, busy man. I'm sorry, uh, without dropping names or examples, I can assure you, as I know you know, if there are particular type of people that want to get in to see the Prime Minister at short notice, he, he they went, will get in. He went to a picture opportunity for a junket for Qantas. Exactly, exactly. His, his diary is so busy that he's okay to fly across the country to do some junket for Qantas. I don't know this, but Hugh, cannot, but what's the, what's but the bet cannot there were? Meet, but cannot yeah, I... meet with these guys. And then he's, he goes up how to a fire zone. But how many fundraisers? How many fundraisers? He goes up to a fire zone to emote all over suffering people for the cameras, fair enough, being out there as a prime minister, showing yourself supporting and being on the fire ground, not a bad thing, thing you probably should do. But did no one in that particularly inept office get to him and say, as a piece of insurance, as a piece of political insurance, if nothing else, meet these buggers. That's what surprises me. So that when me. the fire goes crazy... You can say, I've met to these people, I've heard their concerns, I've acknowledged their concerns. Instead, you ignored them, wouldn't even give them a meeting with a minister, for heaven's that, sake. That is what amazes me the most. I mean, <laughs> yes, they meet with current chiefs, so even if you give them full benefit of the doubt and say practically they're across everything, you know, this can be gotten to in due course because there's a little bit of um, polemic fighting going on here around the issue of climate change, even if you're that cynical, okay, which I'm sure <laughs> they were, what about the politics of it? 
Who sitting there as a guardian of a prime minister gets a letter from 23 ex-emergency chiefs warning the prime minister that the coming season is going to be brutal and catastrophic and action is urgent. We need to meet with you to talk about this and says, you know what? I might just flick that one to my most incompetent minister and see if he'll handle it, which of course he didn't. Mm. Uh, even you'd, you'd want to do it yourself anyway, wouldn't you? So exactly as you say, you can at least politically speaking saying, yep, I meet with the current mob, but I've also met yeah. with all the ex-chiefs. Uh, but the other thing concerned. about meeting with the current lead- leadership, and this goes with the military as well, is that if you're currently in your job, and there's definitely a, a history of this with defence, there are some constraints about Absolutely. the advice that yep. you might give. And this there is, shouldn't be, and by this, the way. There shouldn't be, but this is exactly why they set up the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, to deal with defence and strategic issues from people who are not in the line of command on the basis that Aspie might be a little bolder, might be more able to say, look, seriously, Mm. uh, the defence chiefs won't tell you this for a whole bunch of reasons because they don't want to be seen to be shopping for higher budgets or for whatever other reason, or they want to nod and agree with you. Uh, But here's what the issue is you really need to pay attention to. For that very reason, people like ex-defence chiefs, like ex-firefighters at the highest level are precisely the people you should make sure that you're listening to. These are life and death issues. We are constantly told that the nation's security is central to this government. They've built themselves on the notion of of protecting Australian lives. And yet here we have probably the most current threat to Australian lives that are outside our control. You, You have road tolls and all those sorts of other things. But the kind of thing which sweeps through communities, which can kill people in their homes, and yet you're not taking meetings, to me it is... An appalling lack of judgment. It shows arrogance at the highest level. It shows political ineptitude. We don't and I believe they deserve to... I do believe that they deserve to be punished by it. And to go to the business of the, of the Greens guy talking about how they're all arsonists and everything, you can expect the Greens to tee off on a matter like this because this is the stuff that they feel frustrated by and they also are working to a base. I'm not concerned by what the Greens are doing. I'm concerned by the people who are elected to be the custodians of our safety, who have the means to show national leadership on matters. New South Wales in a state of emergency, for heaven's sake. These are not minor events. And the the complete lack of leadership, of thought, of any kind of forward thinking is to me a mark that will, will that he will carry. Well, on this, on this, Hugh, who, who do you think, I know we're speculating here, but when, when a letter like that comes in, does the Prime Minister see that himself? Does no. his Chief of Staff, Chief does of his staff Principal Private would. Secretary, does his Communications Director, who is responsible for making the call, do you think? Well, you'd think a letter of that uh, seniority... Goes to the Chief of Staff? It would go as far as the Chief of Staff. You, you wouldn't expect every letter is going to go to the Chief of Staff, but a letter like that from a bunch of serious you would assume people, it does. you would think it would escalate up to the Chief of Staff. And if it doesn't, and if I was his chief of staff, I'd be taking the person who held that letter lower down the food chain, if you like, and say, if you get a letter like that, let me bloody well know about it so I can make some proper decisions. But then about equally, it. shouldn't the Prime Minister now be talking to the chief of staff and saying, Oi, you got a letter like that. I didn't even bloody well know about it, but I'm out here trying to defend it. Might be the case. Hmm. Could be the case. Um, we don't have much time left. Uh, thank you for sticking with us, dear listener. Um, the um, As we rant. <laughs> I, very quickly, Israel for Lao, it's all because the bushfires are all because of... Um, same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage, that kind of stuff. Do we care about this? It's funny that it makes the front page. They're not paper. because of same-sex marriage, Hugh? Uh, that is is, is, you're yep. telling me Israel's wrong? <laughs> well, it is interesting because we do have a prime minister who believes you can pray for rain and that that has some... 
Yeah, some relevance. We're, we were talking about that before actually coming in here and doing this. I, I saw someone on Twitter say that to me. I was, you know, if you're like mocking Israel Folau's stupidity. And the person made the point that, look, if you're religious, that's a, that's a more negative version of the people that say, let's pray for rain or pray for the fires to stop. Uh, if you're not religious, they're, they're sort of equally as fanciful. Um, however, I guess one is one is positive, isn't it? We're praying in a in a Christian positive way to stop a catastrophe. The other one is rather negative, saying, "Well, you know, you're all burning uh, and you know starving or whatever it might be because of something wrong that society has done, and, and God is punishing you." It's not 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 the version of Christianity that I was brought up in. We could go on about Christianity. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, and I do say Israel Folau is pretty consistent with what's in uh, the early books of the Bible there with the flood that wipes out all population except for one family. And Anyway, moving on. Very quickly, China. Um, mm. They've blocked uh, Senators uh, uh, James Patterson and also Andrew Hastie from going on this trip uh, to go and inform themselves. I find that outrageous, I have to say. I mean, they can do what they want. They're a sovereign nation. But Matthew Keogh, I don't know the answer to this, whether I'm condemning him or not, but he's a shadow front bencher. He was going on the same mission, apparently. I hope he is boycotting it now mm. because, frankly, the idea that they would ban two outspoken MPs, even if they're of a different partisan complexion, both Liberals, from going because they've had the temerity to be outspoken against China, I would hope that the Labor MP who was going on the same trip says, no, thanks, uh, I'm not going in solidarity with my Democratic colleagues mm. who in your totalitarian authoritarian regime you are not allowing in the country because they had the temerity to speak their mind. Uh, I find that utterly disgraceful, even though I don't often agree with a lot of what comes out of both of their mouths, particularly Andrew Hastie. I, I absolutely will defend uh, his right to say it uh, in, a, in a democratic polity. And the fact that it tells us about where China's at, quite frankly, is a nice strong reminder if we even needed one. Yes, and I hope that it, what emerges out of this is that uh, Andrew Hastie and others feel more uh, absolutely. Inclined. And get a larger platform to discuss about human rights abuses. There are between one and three million Uyghurs in displacement internment camps uh, in Western China. China's trying to stop people talking about that and punish them. I mean, it's and their lines until he repents, I think, was the rhetoric yeah. that they used. That is utterly disgraceful. Let me have a very quick 30-second rant on this, though. When the government, and it did this during the week, the other week, uh, talks about foreign interference at universities and it gets all hairy-chested and starts beating its chest that it's going to do something about that, yes, that's an issue. I agree. Foreign interference at universities through research collaboration or or even as some sort of extension from overseas students from non-democracies like China, all something that needs to be looked at, I agree. However, the whole reason that universities are doing more of this collaborating with research from industry out of China or indeed taking full fee paying overseas students is because they're getting underfunded by the very government that wants to get hairy-chested about foreign interference. If they funded Australian universities anything like other OECD nations fund their universities, then there wouldn't be this issue in the first place. So, you know, I tell you what, there's Maybe a bit both of hypocrisy sides on that here. Too. Both sides on that. Mm. Um, we're kind of out of time because we do try to keep it to half an hour because I know that you have other things to do with your day. But thank you, uh, not you, Peter, the listener, the listener, Peter. Uh, and you've got other things to do with your day as well. Thank you for listening. This is The Professor and the Hack. Uh, see you soon, I hope. <laughs>